You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics, while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Hello, everyone. Glad to have you along with us today. Uh, along with us uh, today is the over, overly excited church historian, Brian Chilton. Hello, Brian. <laughs> hey, Curtis. How you doing, brother? <laughs> good, good. Hey, uh, get, do a little... Uh, housekeeping here before uh, we get moving um you have something to announce about kevin Croyder? yes sir uh in fact i got the news today that uh, kevin Croyder is do is, is has something really excitingly exciting going on and this is especially going to uh, be available this fall but you can go ahead and register now he is setting up a uh, program online where you can take uh, seven week courses in different aspects of theology apologetics uh and bible teaching old testament new testament Testament, all kinds of different courses you can take on there, and uh, there there is a charge to it. Uh, there will be uh, you know coursework that you'll do, but there's a page. It's called Theological Dot Academy. That's T E. Uh, T-H-E-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L Theological Dot Academy And so uh, be sure to go over there and check it out it's, it's a really exciting new program he has uh, The courses he's looking at having on here Includes Christian Foundations Old Testament Survey New Testament Survey Survey of Theology uh, Intro to Apologetics And many, many other courses And there'll be more courses added as time goes on So uh, mm. if you're interested, again, go to theological.academy uh, you can also call if you have any any questions and I love this number Curtis it's 888-3-BIBLE-3 once again oh, wow. that's 888-3-BIBLE-3 or you can go to theological.academy and again it doesn't matter you know there's some people out there they want a good bible education but maybe they can't afford to go to seminary or maybe they um, just don't have the time to go off somewhere like that this offers a good uh, good opportunity for you to interact with the professors also to interact with the resources and and uh, uh, Kevin is one sharp cookie he is he's really he's designed this thing himself in, in addition to some other people who come aboard with him and so this is an exciting new thing coming out this fall and so we'll have more information available to you uh, as time goes on so uh, be, be sure to check that out theological.academy and you can also call for more information at 888-3-BIBLE-3 that's fantastic yeah and I want to also remind people uh, if you're hearing this on uh, any of the podcast formats Please go in and give the podcast here of Bellator Christie Podcast. Give it a review. Um, as as you give it a review, we really don't understand what it does for the podcast uh, in the podcast world, but we do know that that uh, as you give it a review, uh, it gets it in front of more people and it and it gives us a little more more momentum, um, and uh, we're able to reach more people. And that's what this is, podcast is about: is more people hearing it, more people interacting. <clears throat> in asking us questions, and, and more people actually uh, being able to really think critically about some of this stuff. And 
you know, um, it might give uh, some of those that uh, have critical questions, um, can give them a, a point or a place to come back and, and ask us. So uh, please give that a review and we'll, we'll move on. So, and Curtis, um, on that note too, there was a friend of mine uh, in, 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 our, in close to our area, uh, Kerry is his name, and he said he was going to ask a question to try to stump us. We welcome that. If you have something, maybe, yeah. maybe you have a challenging question you want us to research, we may not be able to answer it immediately. Maybe we'll have to research it, but that's what we're looking for. So if you have yep. questions out there, let us know, and we'll be happy to research that and uh, uh, yeah. try to get an answer to you. Yeah, absolutely, and it, you know, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to ask. We're uh, we're we're just here um, <laughs> a little further along, and we can maybe uh, maybe we have the resources to find those questions. And I think that's I think that's something that um, that's unique about Bellator Christie is the fact that um, if I can't answer it, you can't answer it. We have resources that we can actually go in and talk to some of these professors and talk to some of these people that. Uh, these theologians that have uh, some of this uh, information. Absolutely, and I like what Tony Evans said. And and he said, at uh, I was trying to think of the church. It's down in Texas where he pastors. Great man of God. I enjoy listening to his messages. And he talked about the people. Uh, talked talked the people that you know he had his doctorate degree, but that didn't make him smarter than anyone. What it did is it made him a resource to individuals, so that if they had right. questions, and so his doctorate wasn't just for him; it was for the church. And so, um, and I, I, that, that's my vision there as well. I mean, we, we, we have resources. We have uh, things that we can bring to you. We're happy to research them. We have, as, as Curtis was saying, we have access to different individuals. So if you have these questions, don't be afraid to ask, and we'll be yeah. more than happy to look into it. Yeah. Well, the topic for today uh, is one we both are excited about. Uh, and it probably it'll probably be split into many different podcasts, and I'm not really sure. Uh, depending on current events, it, it might get split off, but but we'll try to keep them in, in some sort of orderly fashion. You know, one, two, three, or something. But um, uh, you know, um, it, it's it's going to be an interesting deal. We're talking about um, the history of the church and the history of the apostolic uh, era and. And that that came about from it, uh, the denominations, um, and how they all came about. Um, and so, Brian, I don't know if you want to want to start in on that and start at the first first one, or, or you want to kind of give a little intro, or what? The, the, by way of intro, I'd like to give one word, and this is something Dr. Kevin King, he's a professor I had, he's, he teaches theology at Liberty, but he's also a church historian. He gave a word that uh, in in the last class that was really important for what we're doing here, and it's the word called perennialism. P e r e n n i a l i s m. Perennialism, and what that means is that we learn from the past to understand our present and our future. Mm. And I think there's a great point that needs to be understood because we're not here automatically just like you know curtis you had a calf you said you saw in the early morning didn't know where the mother was well obviously we know that there was a mother somewhere to that calf uh so the same thing is true in history we didn't just appear here with the situations and circumstances we have out of the blue we got here culturally and societally uh and through society by means of uh, various things that have happened over the course of 2,000 years 
when we're talking about mm. the Christian church and understanding that the Christian church is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, it goes back even further than that. But we're looking specifically at the history of the church. Some of the things that we see uh, as Christians, as evangelicals, we understand that there are certain groups that we label as heretics. Now, mm-hmm. is that because we want to be mean? No, of course not. But the reason is, over the course of 2,000 years, many brilliant theologians and scholars uh, have have researched the Scripture, have gone back to the apostolic message and said, this is what the message has been passed on from the earliest source, being Jesus himself, to the apostles. And this message is what we're passing on. This goes, quite honestly, uh, towards something that I'll be speaking on this Sunday called mere Christianity, the fundamentals of Christianity. These things, the fundamentals of Christianity are things that we all as Christians, no matter what our denominational affiliation may be, we agree on these issues. And so you're going to see as we go through the course of these different ages, as we go through these different uh, arguments and debates, you're going to see where some of these things of the past how we're still dealing with some of these things even today and will be in the future. And these are things things that every generation has got to work through, I believe. So it's really mm-hmm. quite fascinating when you go back and look at the past. It really does reveal the present situation and maybe where mm-hmm. we're heading in the future. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, and with this, uh, with our lockdown, uh, with the COVID-19, um, <clears throat> you know, we're starting to see, uh, we're actually starting to see communities unite uh, and 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 we're seeing some really positive things about this uh you know um my son shared a meme uh yesterday with us and it said uh it showed a picture of uh um a family it said before covid19 and everybody was on their phones and and just sitting in their house not doing anything you know mom and dad and kids were all separate and just doing their own thing and then it and then it said during covid19 and it showed them outside uh bicycling and (laughs) and the parents running and it's like maybe that's what god's trying to say like we like we talked about last week on the on the last podcast um there are things that that i think are being shaken out i really do it's funny you mention that because on the bible study that we uh that that i just had for the church uh, we were going through the wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs, and it was talking about how God prunes us. God disciplines us because He loves us, because He mm-hmm. wants us to. He wants to see us on the right path. But sometimes to grow a plant, sometimes you got to prune it. And I'm, and it just dawned on me. It had to be the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's what He's doing to us now. Yep. He's pruning us to get us focused back on the things that where we need to be. But. Sure. Uh, With that said, I guess we'll jump into our, our different ages. We're going to, uh, in this in this podcast today, start, uh, we're going to look at three different ages. And we are covering, let me just let people know, we're covering about 1,500 years worth of church history. So to say that we are giving a generalized survey is an understatement because there's a lot of other things going on with these situations uh, that you're, that we're going to talk about. But I hope that what we'll see... That is that uh, is 
where we are today. And so you're especially going to see this more as we go through the future uh, podcast on this issue. Uh, we're today talking about from the apostolic age to the Reformation. And then our next podcast, we're going to probably have to just look at the Reformation because there's a lot of different components to that. There's a lot of different movers and shakers yeah. that yeah. actually transforms, especially into Protestantism, the different denominations, the main sections of the different denominations that we see. And then we'll go from the Reformation to the current church after that, and then we'll look at uh, several different things. Again, this is a survey, but I, my prayer is that this is going to be helpful for individuals as we right. um, move on. So let's first of all look at the Apostolic Age, and this is generally considered from the years 30 A.D. to 90 A.D., uh, the Apostolic Age consists of individuals who were there around the time of Jesus, first-generation Christians, and even into some early second-generation Christians. They're considered part of this Apostolic Age. It comes from the word apostle, and that's where we get that. So we look at the advent of the church coming around at the time of Pentecost, but really you can point back to the crucifixion of Jesus. There are two years that scholars generally agree uh, that are the two most favorable years for Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, either 33 A.D. or 30 A.D. Uh, if it's 33 A.D., then the date for Jesus' crucifixion would be April 3rd, 33 A.D. If it's 30 A.D., it would be April 7th, 33, 30 A.D. So... Um, uh, if if that's the case, then Easter would be, if it's 33 A.D., on April 5th. If it's 30 A.D., it would be April 9th. Now, there, there are differences of opinion on this. And the majority of scholars hold to a 30-year A.D. Uh, view. I happen to hold to a 33 A.D. view. I think it actually there are many, multiple reasons for holding 33 A.D. I think it fits better with the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel. I think it also fits and coheres with the, the, the timeline we see that Paul gives. Uh, in Galatians, looking back to uh, the the different time span he's talking about, uh, so I think there are, I think there's several things. There's also even some things throughout. If you look at uh, some natural phenomena that matches what the Bible tells us happens at the time of Jesus's crucifixion, better matches on the April third, thirty three A.D. date than necessarily April fifth. Either way, uh, it's uh, it's uh, or excuse me, April seventh, thirty A.D. Um, but April 3rd, 30 AD, 33 AD matches the data, in my opinion, better than April 7th. But e- either hand, April 3rd, April 7th, either one of those days are the, are the date of Jesus' crucifixion. April 5th or April 9th, again, I tend to think that it's April 5th. Uh, that, that would be the first Resurrection Sunday. With that in mind, that would push the first Pentecost day to being either April 25th or April 28th. Uh, that would be April 25th, 33 A.D., or April 28th, uh, 30 A.D. So again, holding 33 A.D., I believe Pentecost would have happened on May 25th. So, um, are we good so far? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So as the church grows and develops, uh, they're trying to find their way. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down, uh, anoints the new church. They are sent forth on a mission 
to go forth as Jesus proclaims to Jerusalem, where they are, to Judea and Samaria, their, their neighboring communities, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. We as a church were commanded to do the same thing, starting where we are, local missions, and then foreign missions as well. So as they're growing and as they're developing, they are finding their footing. Uh, something happens, and, uh, and it's a certain individual who persecutes the church, then as he goes to on the road to Damascus, he sees the resurrected Jesus. Do we know who that is? Yeah, it's Paul. The Apostle Paul, absolutely. God calls Paul to start reaching individuals who are Gentiles. He uses Peter to reach the the uh, the Hebrews or the Israelites, and he uses Paul to reach the the uh, the Greeks, uh, the 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 Hellenists, or they're they're called in Scripture. So this develops the first one of the first controversies. And that's between the Hebraists and the Hellenists. Because there was a division in the church about who was receiving certain things, uh, that's where the advent of deacons came along to help out the apostles or the pastors, or you could say the elders of the time, to, to basically wait on tables to take care of the needs of the church. But the question was asked, even early in the church, I thought I'd set the notifications off, but anyhow, just, just excuse the dings if it comes through. The question was asked, who can be accepted into the church? This this became a big issue, and a lot of it was revolved around the issue of circum- circumcision and the whole issue of grace versus legalism. Uh, mm-hmm. Are we supposed to still keep the law, or is it by grace that we're saved? These issues became almost split the church early on. And so uh, in, in the 40s, I think it was like 47, 49, I believe, 49 AD, you have the Jerusalem Council. I may have my date wrong on that, but I'll go back and double check. But I think it's 48, 49 AD is where you have the Jerusalem Council. And so James, the brother of Jesus, who wasn't a believer of Jesus in his earthly ministry, but then later becomes a believer after seeing the risen Jesus, he is he is the, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, believe it or not. And so the question is asked, is it required of Gentiles to be circumcised? And they had this argumentation going on, this first council, and they come to the conclusion that it is only by grace that we're saved through faith. Now, if if one does want to go through circumcision, that's looked upon favorably. But it, they recognize the fact that it is by the grace of God, it is by the grace coming through the Jesus Christ that one is saved. This is phenomenal. This, this is a huge step for the church. Because had they required uh, the law to be kept the way that the Judaizers were emphasizing, there's the question mark of would the church have grown to the level that it did early on. Mm. One of the big things that's, that's really interesting in this this conversation is 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 the emphasis on grace that they that they recognize the fact that Jesus is sufficient for our salvation and that people can't work their way into heaven it's only by the grace of God that one is saved and so that is one of the big issues they begin dealing with and you see this spilling over um, even later on in the book of Galatians where Paul basically has to call Peter out the right. story goes where Peter is uh, meeting with some Gentile believers, and some of his Jewish friends come up, and so he just gets up out of the the, the table from the the Gentiles and goes eats with the Jews, uh, so as to, and to not be seen with the Gentiles. And 
Paul calls them out. He says, man, don't you realize it's by grace that we're all equal, uh, you know, before Christ? You know, it doesn't matter nationality, uh, ethnicity, or tongue, or language, or any of that sort, that we're all uh, saved by the grace of God. So, of course, this is a Chilton paraphrase. But right. uh, but go and read the book of Galatians. It's a powerful book. But but he calls Peter out on this. And so God calls Paul to, to, to safeguard some of these doctrines, even though he was a persecutor of the church. God calls us, calls him at the right moment, and the right time, and so this these are some of the early controversies that the church has. As time goes on and the church grows, uh, they're going into other areas that are very influenced by uh, Greco-Roman paganism in some areas. And what begins to happen, and this is going to be a recurring theme: how much philosophy is allowed into theology. And, and that's a question. Now, the problem where this becomes an issue is you have uh, some areas, especially in around Asia Minor, uh, you're going to see this in Alexandria later on in history, where you have the rise of these groups called Docetists, which later become Gnostics. And they're going to have, uh, they're going to have very different views of, of, uh, of who God the Father is. And they're going to mix this with, with Platonic thought, which is the teachings of Plato. And so this becomes an issue, especially as we move towards the latter part of the first century. John is combating this with his gospel. He's also combating this in Ephesus in the three letters that he writes. And right. so that's one of the reasons he's focused on that we have seen him, we have touched him, because the Docetists and the Gnostics believe that Jesus was just a spirit that looked like a human being. And isn't it interesting that that's one of the one of the first heresies didn't deny the divinity of Jesus. One of the first heresies denied the humanity of Jesus of all things. Right. So right. you can't really say that the early believers didn't believe that Jesus wasn't divine. It seemed like the the, the early the earliest heresy actually said the exact opposite of that, which is quite right. fascinating. Yeah, what's I guess what's what's curious about that or fascinating about it to me is that was still during the time frame when people actually touched him or when he actually healed and touched people. So if he was a spirit or just a, you know, like they were saying, uh, how could you have the physical? And so, so the yeah. physical is there, you know? Yeah. And so, so what some of these individuals are going to do, and this really becomes more developed in the second century, uh, but, but the thoughts, the seeds are planted in the first century with some of these developments. Um, with with the development of some of these groupings. And, and so the seeds are there. It's not quite fully fleshed out. But they do start having, I think Simon the Sorcerer is linked to one of these heresies as well. Uh, Simon Magnus, I think his name is, or something like that. But sure. um, but yeah, so, so you have the seeds of this early Gnosticism blossoming forth, and it really starts becoming an issue uh, in the second century especially. Hmm. Yeah. So the start of Gnosticism started early. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it's during this time you also have the persecution of the church, but this grows even more in the second century. And this leads us to our second phase, which is the patristic age. Now the patristic the word patristic comes from the Greek word pater, which means father. So we're talking about the early fathers. 
Okay, this yeah, this patriarchs. Yeah, the patriarchs, absolutely. Now there were also matriarchs in this time period. That's what Dr. Cleaver has been teaching us. There were influential women, but they're not given the credence that, that the men are in, in this in this time frame. And this goes into a whole other issue we don't have really time to get into. But um, but there were very influential people, uh, but the fathers are especially the center, front and center in this time period. And this goes between it's debated either between uh, late first century to the fifth century, which would be the four hundreds, but a, most scholars point it even back to the eighth century. So that would look, that would look like something like from ninety A.D. to seven ninety nine A.D. Um, okay. So that's with the centuries, like the century is always one number ahead of whatever date you're talking about. So in the 700s, it ends with 800, so that would be the 8th century. Or the 1st century ends with 100, that would be the 1st century. It's kind of a little confusing sometimes, but um, uh-huh. but that's what we're looking at. So. No, just, I don't want to confuse where we're at, but back up a little bit. Wasn't John the Beloved... Um, on the island of Patmos uh, around 90 A.D.? He was. So John has an interesting story. So he is the pastor of the Church of Ephesus late in life. There's some confusion as to what happened to him, how he died. Some believe he died as a martyr. Some people believe that he didn't. And and it's really a little bit confusing. Uh, There seems to be a good... I'm not going to say it's a strong... There is a strong connection between John the Apostle and the Church of Ephesus. Um, but there there's, there are these, these stories that uh, the emperor that time, I think is it Diocletian? I get them mixed up. But anyhow, the emperor that time, he uh, tried to boil John the Apostle in oil, and, and he didn't die. So at that time, it said he... <laughs> Sent him to the Isle of Patmos. My goodness. So, oh, my goodness. I mean, can you imagine being boiled in oil? Yeah. It didn't work, and so yeah. we we're going to say, "Well, hey, we're going to kick you off to the Isle of Patmos." Oh, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so during that time, that's where he has the revelation and is written down. Now, obviously, there are controversies surrounding that. I am a traditionalist. I believe in the traditional authorship of the of the individuals in yeah. the New Testament. So, I think John wrote John. And um, I think Matthew wrote Matthew, Luke wrote Luke, and so on and so forth. Uh, right. I just haven't seen anything convincing otherwise. Yeah, there's there's some of that that, that gets a little bit uh, um, washed or in kind of kind of diluted down because they 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 try to bring in their uh, their presupposition into how they're discovering or how they're finding those. Uh, those other authors out so yeah and most of it's not based on anything historical most of it's uh but a lot of it in my opinion is is uh i think making the text sometimes say things that it's not intended to i mean i honestly from from day one since reading the gospel of john i don't see how anyone can get around saying that john the apostle wasn't the writer of the fourth gospel i mean because it just seems like it's just clear but there are some individuals who make a demarcation between the beloved disciple and and the the notion of the the brothers of of Zebedee, uh, and so that's how they get around that. But anyhow, I, I don't think there's any validity. I think it. Uh, I think I think the evidence, if you go back to the earliest church notes, that uh, who the authors are, uh, the only the only one that's not known for sure is the Book of Hebrews. Right. Um, I think Eusebius of Caesarea. And his church history says that only God knows who really wrote uh, 
Hebrews. It, it, it was an associate at least of Paul. It may have been Paul, but it was at least an associate of Paul, so we know that it had the apostolic mark on it. Um, right. But outside right. of that, now, there were some debates on Revelation, Second Peter, and the book of Jude. Um, James was a little bit, but... Uh, but 85% of the New Testament, there was no debate about it whatsoever. And, and those other debates really came about because some people didn't like some of the things that the book of Revelation was saying. It challenged their eschatology. So that, that was more along the lines than anything else. Right, and, and, and uh, this is all within the umbrella of Christendom, right? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, these agreements. Yeah, okay. So back to pat- uh, patriarchy. Uh, so it's important to understand that the pers- now the persecution started in the first century, and we don't want to deny that, but the persecution amplified in the second century. It really intensified in the second century. Uh, you have Ignatius. In fact, we wrote, uh, we read uh, some of his seven letters, a very powerful story. I mean, especially now when you talk about people fighting over toilet paper and stuff like this, Ignatius... Uh, uh, Ignatius wrote seven letters to seven different churches as he was taken by the imperial guard to Rome. And he's writing these churches saying, be unified in the Lord, respect your pastors, be unified in the Lord. And he even writes the, the church of Rome. He says, I'm going to be fed to wild beasts, but I don't want you to interfere in this. Because if it's God's will for me to die in the arena... Then, then it's God's will. I want to. I want to serve the Lord. Now, it's not that he wanted to die. It's not that that was the case. And so, I don't think we need to be irresponsible, saying, "Well, hey, I'm going to run towards COVID nineteen or something like that." No, don't want to do that. But at the same time, he says, "Whatever God's will for me is, I want to honor the Lord." And that's a whole different mentality than what we see in today's time. Right. But uh, so the church is enduring persecution. Eventually, during this time period, and we're, we're again we're looking at a large swath of time, we go from the church being persecuted intensely to in around the three hundreds, the church is legalized in a, as an official religion of Rome because of Constantine the Great, and then over time, as the church is given uh, authority to be part of the Roman Empire, it rises to power, and that's going to cause another set of problems that really start taking rise as we get into the medieval time period. So there are several different sets of controversies that take place in the patristic age. Um, you have the docetists who become the Gnostics, and they even question the Old Testament. And that what they're going to basically say, the Gnostics, and again, I've got to be really brief with this because <laughs> this, this podcast may require two podcasts in and of itself. <laughs> But the Gnostics believed that there were two gods. The real, genuine God was a spirit god, and that was the spirit. The spiritual God was the creator of the other god, and the spiritual God is the God you see in the New Testament. And they believe this lesser God was a mean, villainous God, and he was the God you seen in the Old Testament. And to, in order to be saved, that Christ was the spiritual manifestation of this true spirit God, and so to. To get to be saved, the Gnostics, which which term comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, they believe that you had to have these secret teachings, and that's where you see these secret gospels, like the Gospel yeah. of Thomas, the secret Gospel of Mark. They believe that you had to have these secrets, and by knowledge, 
you could travel through the seven heavens to finally reach the um, the, the genuine God. So in other words, they believed that this secret knowledge was almost like a password. And you went up through these different levels of heaven and you gave a password to one of the angels and he let you through the next he- the next heaven. And that angel, if you gave him the password and the secret knowledge, would go on so on and so forth. Well, the church was combating this. And, and there were different tactics that were used to combat the problem. Now, this is going to grow into two different schools of thought. The Alexandrian school from Alexandria, Egypt, and the Antiochene school, or Antiochene school, out of Antioch of Syria. Now, here's the difference. Alexandria, you have guys like Origin of Alexandria. And Alexandria is a huge intellectual school. Uh, there's, there's a huge intellectual area in, Athena, in, in Alexandria. They had one of the world's largest libraries there. Uh, mm. I mean, it was huge. Out of this school, you have very intellectual individuals coming out, like Origin of Alexandria. His, he was wrong, he was questionable on some things, but the man was a genius. He was a genius, and he uses allegory, allegorical methods in in the Bible to argue against the Gnostics. And what he believes is there are three levels of interpretation in the Scripture. There's the literal meaning, which needs to be emphasized, and then there is a moral meaning. And then there is a spiritual meaning to the scriptures. Uh, And the spiritual meaning would be more of an allegorical meaning. Well, this took off and the Alexandrian school began to really focus on allegory. Well, the Antiochians says, wait a minute. You guys are getting too carried away with some of your interpretations. So you have guys from the uh, uh, I can't remember how you're supposed to say it. Antiochian or Antiochian? Antiochian, I think they say it. You have guys like Tertullian, another, and some guys you may not have heard about like Theophilus, uh, Theophilus of Antioch, Theodorus of Tarsus. There's another guy, Theodorus of Mopsuestia. I love saying his name, Mopsuestia. But the most <laughs> notable of all, <laughs> the, the most notable of all is a guy by the name of John Chrysostom. Chrysostom means the golden tongue. He was a phenomenal preacher. The Antiochians were saying, listen, you need to emphasize the literal nature of Scripture, uh, the literal interpretation. Go back and see what the text is trying to say instead of adding allegory. Now, they weren't necessarily opposed to allegory to some degree, but they said the Alexandrians were abusing this. So even today, we have debates on how we need to interpret Scripture. Well, these are the same debates they were having back even then. So, uh, so it's an interesting thing. These two different schools developing, and uh, they approach scripture from two very different ways, two different yeah. different means. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And so, then in the three hundreds, you have the, another issue. It becomes a ma- major issue, uh, and uh, this is very intriguing. Now, many people ask, why do we as evangelicals consider the Jehovah Witness movement heretical? Right. Well, here's the reason why. In the 300s, there was a guy by the name of Arius of Alexandria, and he was wrestling over the issue. There were several other issues he was wrestling with, but one of the biggest issues he was wrestling over was the issue of begotten, the begottenness of the Son of God. And he's going to say that there was a time when the Son was not. So what he's going to say is God the Father created the Son, and that the Son did not eternally exist from 
but he was not co-eternal with the Father. Well, Athanasius of Alexandria, who's called the Black Dwarf because of his stature and his skin color, he comes along and says, No, Arius, you are out of your mind, man. What are you smoking? Uh, he says, you know, the, the Christ is the eternal Lagos. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And this created a huge debate in the 300s. Well, eventually in 325, the, uh, Constantine realized that the church was was divided. And I found out something this past week from Dr. Cleaver I didn't know. Constantine actually cited on the favor of Arianism. He actually cited on the on the he actually favored Arius's interpretation. However, he was looking at this and he said, "Church, you've got to come to a resolution because we've made Christianity an official religion. You guys are tearing. You guys are are, are at one another's throats on this issue. You've got to resolve this." By the way, most of the people who were there at the Nicene Council were were damaged. They were, were injured. Some of them were blind from all the persecutions that had taken place. Well, they ruled. And came about. They saw. They looked at the scripture. They 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 debated. They even looked at some of the tactics the Arians used, which weren't good. And they sided on the on the favor in favor of Athanasius of Alexandria. But it's interesting that then it was debated because because of perhaps the persuasiveness of Alex uh, Arius of Alexandria. But they decided Athanasius was right based on the teachings of scripture. So at the Nicene Council, and this was later confirmed. Uh, at the the uh, the uh, Chalcedonian uh, Council, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, later on, but they said, "Listen, Jesus is the eternal Logos. He's the eternal. He's co-eternal with God. He wasn't a created being. He's always been in existence with the Father." And now this leads to another issue later in the 300s between uh, uh, th- this group called the Numa- N- Numa- <laughs> hard word Numatomachians which means the uh, uh, spirit fighters, I believe, or something like that, um, who were basically saying that the, the Holy Spirit is just a force but not a person, not, not the divine nature of God. Well, you have Basil of Caesarea and the Cappadocian fathers, which include Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory Nazianzus, who, who argue and contend that the Holy Spirit is divine and he's God as well. And so, so to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you're not blaspheming, blaspheming against an it, you're blaspheming against a person. And they go back right. in Scripture and they settle this issue. And it was finally settled at the First Council of Constantinople in 381. So interestingly here, you have this notion that already through the 300s, by the time you get to 400, the church has settled the issue. There's still some debates going on, but the church has made some very important edicts in, in the church, saying that Jesus is the eternal Logos, and, and the church united agrees on that. That, that I think what was it, Norm Geisler says, this, the, uh, we accept um, three creeds as Orthodox Christians and the first four councils in the first five centuries. I think something like that, if I'm not mistaken. But anyhow, uh, he said... Uh, you have the divine nature of Jesus established by this time, and you have the divine nature of the Holy Spirit settled by this time as well. So the right. Trinity is established by this point in time. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. So that's, Interesting stuff. So that's why we would say that Mormonism is not... It, it, that Mormonism is a heresy because Jesus isn't a spirit being, as the Gnostics right. would say. We would also say Jehovah Witnesses aren't Orthodox either because of the lineage that we have from early on 
where these, these scholars and theologians were going back to the scripture and the apostolic message and saying, this is not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught, the apostolic church taught, that Jesus is co-eternal with God, the Holy Spirit is God, and they settled these issues as well. So this right. leads us to the late 300s and 400s. Now, Curtis, neither one of us would be considered a five-point Calvinist. Okay? Now, unfortunately, some individuals would label us being Pelagian. Okay? Hmm. Some people would would, uh, would would have called Wesleyans Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. That's erroneous, and I'm going to I want to explain why. Because if you go back in history and, and you look at what's going on, you see that's not what Pelagius was argu- arguing for, and that is not why the church deemed him a heretic. In the late three hundreds and early four hundreds, there was a debate that ensued between Augustine of Hippo and Pelagius. Pelagius, which may have been, some people think he may have been British or he may have been Alexandrian. I don't really know, but I was reading one article that seemed to suggest that maybe he was British. I I don't know. The church had grown and exploded by that time. But he argued, he said that a person didn't need Jesus to be saved. Okay. He said that you could, Jesus is the perfect example for us. And that if we follow in his example, by our works we can be saved. Now, I think we already can see where the problem is with that. Yeah. Yep. Because let's link this back to the early church. Remember we were talking early on about the problem between grace and legalism? You know, does the law save you or is it by the grace of God that you're saved? Well, the church settled that early on at the Jerusalem Council. Well, Augustine of Hippo is confronting Pelagius and says, no, it's, we have a grace-based salvation. We can't save ourselves. And right. he starts talking more about the sovereignty of God, that, that we had to have a God who, who threw out the lifeline. Now, some people are going to say that Augustine didn't believe in free will. He did believe in free will, especially early on if you look at his life. He argues for free will in a balanced fashion. But he states that we are saved by the grace of God, not by works. So... At the Council of Carthage in 418 A.D., the church deemed Pelagianism a heresy. Now, here's semi-Pelagianism is often mentioned as well. But what semi-Pelagianism, what it would hold is that our works keep us saved. You know, in other words, that's what you know. So grace saves you, but the works keep us saved. We understand, you know, no matter what you do with whether salvation can be is 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 kept or lost, we understand it's by God's grace that we're saved. So I don't think that that Wesleyanism. I don't think that these different uh, orthodox positions that we see today would be considered as Pelagianism. However, I have a lot of good Roman Catholic friends, okay? But if you follow Catholicism the way it is now, not the way it used to be, but the way it is now, some branches of Catholicism would follow in along with the Pelagian idea ideology because they would say, if you keep the mass, you keep these different things, that would keep you in the fold. So right. that wouldn't even be full Pelagianism. That may be argued, you know, considered to be semi-Pelagianism, some might say, but that's a different topic for a different time. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, well, go ahead. Well, okay, I didn't know if you had something. 
<laughs> okay, so the in 1054, uh, again, we're skipping over a large period of time. There's another schism that takes place, and this is over the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit come from the Father, or does it come from the Father and Son? During this period of time, you also have this battle going on between who, which bishop is most in control. Generally speaking, there were five major, well, generally speaking, the church had, you might say, elders, and then they had bishops over these presiding areas. And, uh, and a lot of it, we have to understand, it was due to the fact that there were a lot more house churches. I think the first, ha- the first actual church was built, Dr. Cleaver, I think, said in class this week, the first actual church wasn't even built until the 200s, like 250 or something like that. Before that time, they were all house churches, which is amazing. And it was 250 mm-hmm. years before you have the actual first structure. That's something for us to remember even now as we're going through the situation wow. we are. Uh, yeah. So you have a schism that takes place over, because the Bishop of Rome was saying that I have universal jurisdiction, where the other bishop says no. There were other issues over the Holy Spirit, mysticism, what do we do with icons and things of this nature, and this is going to lead to a big separation between the Eastern Church that becomes Orthodox and the Western Church that becomes the Roman Catholic Church. And so... um, our history as Protestants are going to follow the lineage of the Roman Catholic Church because we are products from the Catholic Church. And I want to say again, the Catholic Church today was not the way the Catholic Church was early on. There's some developments that take place that's eventually going to have one guy by the name of Martin Luther in 1517 nail uh, 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg on October 31st of all days. Mm. And so and he's going to say, listen, there's some issues we have here, and we and his his goal was not even to split from the church. His goal was to reform the church, and so that's an important thing to remember. Right. And this leads us to the final section we're going to talk about today, and I'm amazed we even got to this point. Um, and and we we'll have to just rush through this. Unfortunately, again, we're we're skipping over a lot of different issues. But the medieval church, uh, which is uh, around from 800 to we're going to say about the 1500s, just at least for uh, for what we're doing today. And so during this time, the church rises to power, um, and the church becomes to have too much control, some people will argue, in different aspects of politics. This is going to be an issue when we come to the Protestant Reformation because there's, there's, there's this idea of separation of church and state. But this is even misused in modern times. The separation right. of church and state does not mean that the church cannot... Um, have some say, but what it's saying is that the church and state should not be unified so that, one, the church doesn't rule over the state and and or the state does not rule over the church. So it was actually more beneficial to the church that this took place. And this is going to, there are some abuses that take place as well, especially concerning indulgences, and we'll have to get into that in our next podcast. But during this time, uh, the major controversy was the rise to power. During this time, you have the um, the uh, inquisitions that are taking place, 
where the church abuses that. You have some, the, uh, the crusades taking place during this time, during the rise of Islam, and and the, there's a whole lot we can say there. I don't think the, and I'm gonna say something surprising. I don't think that the first, quite honestly, the first crusade was was bad because I think they were trying to defend themselves against uh, some individuals, barbarians that were attacking them and taking their land. Uh, it got to a point where it got out of hand, and this is right. going to be some areas where some of the reformers are going to take issue. But another area of focus during this time was the issue of scholasticism. And, and, and if you go back in early on, we were talking about the question about how much philosophy can be um, allowed in. This is going to be an issue Tertullian deals with. He says no philosophy or little philosophy, and that's debatable as to how much he went there. Augustine's right. going to add more philosophy in it. Uh, uh, Basil of Caesarea, Oregon of, of uh, Alexandria, they use a lot of, of philosophy to back up the biblical truth. Uh, so there's this there's this there's this um, debate going on. Well, we see this especially coming out in the scholastic movement. The scholastic movement is one that was looking back to the scripture. Uh, it's it's a rise of learning, a rise of reason, and you have in the 1200s two schools coming out. Dominic in 1215 developed the Dominican school. And their main purpose was to learn the scripture and to stand against heresy, develop the matters of the mind. But you also see another school developing from Francis of Assisi in 1209 called the Franciscan School. They emphasize minimalism, austerity, and matters of the heart. Well, you have two guys by the name of Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure, uh, and they are uh, asking the question, where does theology originate? Aquinas is going to argue faith, th- faith through reason leads to love, and Bonaventure is going to say that faith through love leads to reason. And so this is going to be a debate that they have going on, and I think uh, this is going to this is going to come back again. This is going to resurface as we see some movements taking place. Uh, even in America, there's a big debate now um, going on, uh, and this goes back even to the 1900s. There was there was a uh, 1800s 1900s where there was a debate between two schools of thought, the Charlestonian School and the Sandy, uh, I think it was Sandy Ridge School here in the Carolinas. The Charlestonian School out of Charleston, South Carolina, they were mainly about the intellect, and uh, the Sandy Ridge was about uh, the heart. So we still have these debates now, uh, and I think part of the problem we have in the modern church is that we've went too far to the Franciscan side that we've forgotten about the Dominican side, and I think that that uh, that the the, the uh, needle is going back to the other side. But we have to be careful as apologists as to not leave out matters of the heart as well in our emphasis in matters of the mind. So there's a balance that takes place. But isn't it interesting that this isn't a new thing we're dealing with? This even goes back to the medieval ages, even earlier right. than that, uh, about some of these debates that are ensuing within the church. And so in our next time that we look at the history of the church, we're going to start on October 31st, 1517, of a guy, a very interesting guy by the name of Martin Luther. And let me just leave you with this as a little teaser. There are three things that said that Martin Luther loved. All started with a B. It said Martin Luther loved his Bible, his bride, and being a German, he loved his beer. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. So from a Baptist friends, I'm sorry, but that's just history. That's what the historians say. So <laughs> Right. Right. Well it's it's curious, um kind of going back a little bit of that, um during three hundred, you know, uh or prior to three hundred AD, um what kind of persecution was going on? I mean Kind of give a little bit of a brief brief run of that and, and fill us in what what kind of persecution was actually happening to the church because um, we know that the councils formed um, some of the some of the other uh, basis of what we what we understand but those were still being believed and and and, uh, and dealt with but it was it was almost scattered. Yeah, so so you do have a council in Jerusalem in 48, 49 A.D. I think it's actually 48. I think I said 49. I think it's 48 A.D. But anyhow, it's the late 40s. Um, so you have that council early on. But the Nicene Council doesn't come about until um, 325, and that's, that's even after Constantine rise to power. And I even asked uh, Dr. Cleaver this question because you hear that a lot of people t- say that Constantine had a had a big hand in this. The fact that he was an Arius and agreed with the ruling for Athanasius says something. Uh, that says a lot. But he was actually mostly hands-off because his biggest concern was the church needs to be unified. We need to settle this issue. You guys need to settle this issue as a church. You need to go back to Scripture. You need to see what's being said. You need to see what the truth is, and let's settle this thing for good and for all. And so it's interesting. He was an area. He agreed with Arius, but then he uh, came to agree with the Athanasians later on, or at least accepted the Athanasian rule. But going back to the persecution, there were all kinds of persecution going on in, in seventy A.D. There are good, there's good reason to believe. I'm sorry, not seventy A.D. In mean, sixty-seven A.D., there's good reason to believe that Paul the apostle and Peter died pretty close together and it's interesting that's an interesting story that you see between the pages of scripture that they had that, that Paul and Peter had their dispatch but by come 67 AD they died together as brothers in arms uh, Paul was, had, was beheaded and Peter was crucified allegedly upside down because he didn't mm-hmm. deem it himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner of Jesus you also have individuals uh, Polycarp was martyred a lot of the early patristics you read about Justin Martyr uh, he, he's also called, I think, was he called Justin the Great or something like that? Justin Margaret was an incredible apologist, deep philosopher, credible mind, but he was martyred, hence the name Justin Martyr. You have families who were being fed to the wild beasts. Can you imagine, Curtis, going out into the uh, Colosseum with your f- wife and children? You hear testimonies of people, of, of, uh, of loved ones telling their family, stay strong in the faith. This is only going to be momentary, but uh, you, you're going to see Jesus very soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, going out mm-hmm. as families, you know, you see um, in 70 AD, Nero is said, uh, well, you have the destruction of Jerusalem. It's also said during this time that uh, that uh, Nero dined at the uh, light of burning Christians. And he, right. would, he would eat his supper before. I mean, he was really a madman, and he's, he serves as a prototype for what the future Antichrist is going to be like. But, um, yeah, I mean, you have all these different persecutions going on, and you have one depraved emperor after another. Some are worse than others. But right around the time of the 300s, you have Constantine, who uh, has this vision, and um, whatever it is he saw, I believe he saw the, the uh, letters Cairo, 
which are the first two letters for, for the Greek word Christ, and he won the battle at the Battle of Milan and um, at the Bridge of Milan and, and became a Christian thereafter. So uh, was it legitimate? Was it not? I believe it is uh, because he made the church the official one of the official religions in Rome. And it was during that time the reason that some of these councils came about was because these Christians had all these different ideas, but they were under such intense persecution they didn't have time to work them out until they had times of peace. And right. during those times of peace was when they were able to kind of look more at these theological issues and um, kind of work through them there. Right. Yep. Well, that's some uh, that's some information to cover, and I hope uh, it's not too overwhelming for people. But <laughs> the, the nice thing is, being on a podcast, um, you can always um, pause it, write the dates down, and, and I encourage people um, start looking and and. Uh, write the dates down and start kind of researching it, start figuring out uh, what what was really going on in the early parts of the birth of the Christian church. Um, it, it's, it, it comes out of, uh, it was birthed out of Judaism, and it was birthed out of, out of something very uh, foundational, and, and we see the Christian church rising, and actually um, through all the heat, through all the persecution, through all the times that we were uh, disbanded or, uh, you know, made go into chaos, um, we held together. Um, and and how, how amazing is our God that he held that together um, throughout that time and allowed that information to stay steady. And, and Curtis, can, can I say this? In, uh, going back to that word perennialism, we learn from the past to know about our present and future. If God got us through all those issues, He's going to bring us through this COVID nineteen issue as well. Sure, and sure. I think we'll be stronger for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're seeing the some of the effects of that right now. We're seeing unification of some families and and communities, and I and I agree. It's it's uh, it's going to be a um, it's going to be brighter on the backside of this. So, Amen. So. Uh, well, everybody, we thank you for your time. Um, we, have, we at Bellator Christie want to thank you for that, um, and uh, we value it. Um, our prayer is that this podcast help you help stretch your mind and as a place to strengthen your faith. As we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information, join us next time on Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, soldier on, friends. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas.
It's my privilege to announce to you that the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is now available on Kindle. So you can get the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics in all formats now. It's available on Kindle, as well as paperback, hardcover, and you can also find it on the Nook at barnesandnoble.com. So please go and order your copy today and share it, or maybe you'd like to share it with a friend. Whatever the case may be, help us as we get the word out and let people know that we have a faith worth believing in.